Oh, Peter. So, chapter 1. Go ahead and turn to chapter 1 if you're not already there. And we will begin by reading verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11. That's our target text this morning. So please follow along as I read. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Verses 8-11, through the title of this morning's sermon is called, The Grace of Christ for the Virtuous. The Grace of Christ for the Virtuous. And we draw that title based on this, what what we had described in part as a ladder of virtues. If you look back, we probably should have included this in our reading this morning, but if you look back, just a couple verses in this chapter, you'll see what Peter is getting at. He says this, now for this very reason also, verse 5, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. And then he goes on to say, for if these qualities are yours and increasing. So those qualities we call, we could just call very simply, Christian virtues. Now it's not an exhaustive list, but it is a sufficient list. It is a a list that grabs our attention and one that we should aspire as the church to live consistently with. And we must also acknowledge we are not virtuous in and of ourselves. It's not as if we have grace from Christ because we are somehow uh, conjuring up our own virtues. Quite the opposite. We are only the virtuous because God calls us so. He calls us to this life. We are only virtuous as we understand virtue as exemplified in the very person of God. But we also have to recognize another thing. It is the work of God, it's probably the most important thing, it is the very work of God that allows us to be virtuous. When God calls us His righteous people, are we not righteous because we are a new creation in Christ? Are we not righteous because we have had Christ's righteousness imputed to our account? So again, it's not a righteousness of our own. It's righteousness as a gift from God. Oh, thank you. That sounds much better. (laughs) Um, If we are called God's holy people, we are only God's holy people because God calls us His holy people. See, it comes from God's Word. That's that's where it originates from. It's not because we are that in and of ourselves. And what this points to is a very important truth. Is that even after God's saving grace is granted to us, it's not as if He withdraws and leaves us to our own devices. We've said this several times before. But the fact is, is that our Lord Jesus Christ is interested in us. Even if we understood ourselves as a project of His. 
He is still sanctifying us. He is still making us like Himself. And the fact is, is that Christ loves that work. Right? Perhaps even this winter, I mean, we just got through, we just got through summer. We kind of skipped straight to winter. We skipped fall here in Colorado, it seems. It's cold right away. I don't, know how, I don't know how anyone goes through it, but you know, we get through all those projects, right? We have our seasonal projects, things we need to do. Some of you, if you live, if you live on property, perhaps you're winterizing, right? You're out there in the cold. You're getting stuff ready for when it gets real cold, right? Some projects we don't like so much. Some of them are a drudgery. Some of them are very hard work and uncomfortable. But of course, we all go through life with those projects, with those assignments that we really come to love, whether they're short-term or long-term. You think of maybe a person who really loves cars, right? They, 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 they bought a car kit or something, or, or a classic that was all beaten up, and then over time, they restore it, right? They, get in the, they, they swap out various engine parts, and they get parts of the, perhaps parts of the frame need to be replaced. You need to get a new paint job. Maybe some windows are cracked. You need to replace those. But over time, we would hope something like that not only is an investment, but it becomes a labor of love, right? You're interested in that project. You not only love it the way it is, but you also love what it is going to become. You delight in the day that it will be complete. But in the meantime, you pay close and careful attention because you love the work. You look forward to the work. You anticipate great and visible progress. And I would say that the Lord gives us the same kind of attention. These virtues that we grow in are only a product of His grace. Not of our own works, not of our own wisdom or strength, but they all come from God and only God. And yet, as time goes on and as we are sanctified, we find that this process is a work of God's careful, close, and deliberate attention. Christ loves the work of redemption that He does upon His people. And that is why we call this the grace of Christ for the virtuous. We are the virtuous because Peter tells us to grow in those virtues. We are the virtuous because God in His grace and strength has provided everything so that we are Christians who are virtuous. Virtues, of course, that reflect the character of Christ, and really come as a result of, as Peter describes, partaking in the divine nature. That's where all this comes from. These are, these are byproducts of this constant fellow, life-giving fellowship that we have with Christ. And so I would say that is the inevitable result. And so, of course, Peter tells us not only to build these things, you know, it begins with Moral excellence and really at the heart of all of that is love, but he says continue to grow in them, right? And of course, we will have a praiseworthy result, but we want to spend time pondering this because we want to understand very clearly that this, this, this growth is not optional for the believer. We are all commanded to grow. We are instructed to grow, but we are also given everything we need to grow, I mean, you could really call this, another name for this sermon could be what the Christian must be. We've talked about who and what Christ must be. But the work that He does, we can also say this is what the Christian must be based on that ongoing work. So I want to break this down into five 
five truths, five important truths in reference to how the grace of Christ makes its impact upon the virtuous Christian. So here's the first one. We'll jump right into the text. Here's the first one. Grace empowers me to serve Christ. That is the first. Grace empowers me to serve Christ. And now let's let's, let's see what Peter means here. Let's go to our text. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a particular goal here, but all of this really falls under the umbrella of how we serve Christ. Every Christian is called to serve Christ, and we need power to do that. And this strength, I think, is manifested in these, in the growth of these qualities. And I think it's pretty obvious what Peter is talking about. These qualities is not in the Greek, but he says, for if these are yours and are increasing. So what qualities? Well, everything ranging from moral excellence to love. Right? It all culminates in a, in a very clear manifestation of Christian love, both a love for God, a love for our brethren, and even a, a passion for the lost, to see the lost come to Christ. And it says, if these are your possession. And I think the understanding is, is that if we are truly believing in Jesus Christ alone, these are our possession. So if they are your possession, and they are, because if Christ has granted them to you, they should be yours and increasing. We've warned a lot about spiritual stagnation, right? But the Christian, that's why we call it the Christian walk. You don't hear often about the Christian standing still. Even if we, the, the Christian is standing, he is doing something, right? What are we doing? We're growing, firmly rooted in the gospel. But if these are yours and are, are increasing, and what a precious gift they are, but they have a particular result. And it is this they do not make you useless nor unproductive in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about true knowledge again. I believe up to now, this is the fourth time, eight verses in, it's the fourth time that Peter has mentioned it. He's called it knowledge a couple times. He's called it true knowledge. I think he's really talking about effectively the same thing. But I think when he says true knowledge, it should should bring up in our minds that there is a true knowledge and there is a counterfeit knowledge. There are things that masquerade as knowledge, that pose as knowledge, and of course we that, that, that leads us to Peter's description of these false teachers. They peddle a so-called knowledge, but it is not a knowledge that transforms one's life into the image of Christ. It's not a life-giving knowledge. It's not a knowledge that leads to humble service. It is a true knowledge. A knowledge that grants life. We read it this morning, right? John 17.3 and, and this is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I'm not sure if we referenced this last Lord's Day, but whether we did or not, it's so important that we uh, understand the application of this passage in the context of 2 Peter. Because we never want to think that knowledge is somehow useless in the Christian context. Remember, knowledge is dynamic. It's not isolated facts. Knowledge is so important, we, under, we can only understand it in conjunction with salvation in Christ. This is eternal life. Well, oh, let me have it, John. Like, what, what, what is eternal life? How do we understand it? That they may know you. See, to know God truly is to be alive in Him, is to have, or is to possess in Christ eternal life. 
And notice John's use here. That they may know you, the only what? The only true God. right? The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when we talk about being useful and productive in true knowledge, we have to understand true knowledge as true knowledge of Christ grounded in Scripture, a true knowledge of Christ that grows in truth. Remember, true knowledge wants to, wants to increase by its very nature. When we first come to a saving knowledge of Christ, if the love of God is truly in our hearts, we want to know Him more. So, from that, true knowledge of Christ also grows in love. We uh, renew our affections for Him. We grow in love and devotion to Christ. And of course, true knowledge grows in faith. We should, if we truly know Christ, bear witness to the fact that our trust in Him will strengthen over time. It will, it will galvanize even through the fires of persecution and affliction. Even as it comes up against false teaching. I mean, that's one way. We don't have to think of that that way. How a true knowledge is strengthened by being exposed to the fire of false knowledge. By being exposed to false gospels. Why? Because it tells us, go back to what you were taught. This person is teaching this. I'm going to search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. You know, being a Berean, like from Acts 17. I think it's 17. Um, so true knowledge all grows in those things in reference to Christ. And we want to be fruitful. We want to be productive. It kind of lends itself to this image be, being, being fruitful almost as, as giving birth, right? Reproducing. Being fruitful and multiplying. And seeing that as a, a blessing from God in that sense that you know, not only do we preach the Gospel and see people come to Christ in full faith and repentance, but we also disciple them. We teach them the commandments of God. So that they are constantly renewed and strengthened and growing in grace just as we hopefully are. But consider Paul's words to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.21 And I, I love referencing 2 Timothy as well because that's, those are Paul's dying words. So it's interesting to compare them with Peter's dying words here. But he says this, 2 Timothy 2.21 Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. So preparation for that good work, though, requires true knowledge. You notice here he says, you're not useless nor unproductive in the true knowledge. So where is that? What is that? Where, why do we have productivity? Why do we have fruitfulness? Well, it's not done in ignorance. It's not done on accident. It's based in knowledge. It's done on purpose. It's done deliberately, but always with reference to the truth. Always with reference to how Christ has revealed Himself amongst His people. Listen to Colossians 1.10. This was very near the heart of the Apostle Paul. He says this to them, "...so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work." Right? Bearing fruit in every good work. So even the work itself can be fruitful. But notice this. Look how he closes this verse. He says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Right? So even as we work, we increase in knowledge. You would think, wow, it's as if God is revealing Himself everywhere to His church. It must be because He is. Don't underestimate the opportunity to know Christ even in the work of the Gospel. 
how, how His grace is revealed. Consider even the words from Jesus Himself in John 15.2. He says, Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. These branches, they're not doing much. All they are is taken away from the productivity of the other branches. I'm going to prune them and cut them off so that this believer may be even more fruitful. Right? But we have a warning. All Christians are called to be fruitful. But there are always some poser branches who really don't belong there. Listen to John 15.6. If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. I mean, what a... What a horrific scene that is, and yet it's a gracious warning for us not to be unfruitful, to always look to God for the power and grace to bear fruit as we serve Christ. Remember, we are told, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Enough said. Going back to Paul from Titus 3.14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful, right? It's not, it's not as if fruitfulness merits salvation. Fruitfulness flows from it, right? It's a byproduct of salvation. And we're saying that if grace is truly at work, if the grace of Jesus Christ is truly at work in you, you will be fruitful. You will not be stagnant. You will not be unproductive. See, now, this is the grace of Christ. He will, de- he will not deny Himself in His work in you. That is what we want. We want these things to be ours. We want to see them as a gift from God and they lend themselves to serving Christ well. And that we serve Him because of what is given in abundance. Right? These things that come from fellowshipping with Him and partaking in the divine nature. But they are ours and we should desire them. We should pray for them. We should watch them closely to see how the Lord is manifesting His grace in us. Because they are for us. These things are for us to be used to bring God glory and to make His name known. And we do want to pray faithfully for that increase. We want to be fruitful. And we do not want to deny the work of grace by being the opposite. We don't want to be unfruitful in each of these things. And so deny Christ His proper place of honor and glory in the church. We want to demonstrate that our knowledge is fruitful. That we have a knowledge of Christ that isn't simply puffing us up, but a knowledge that goes to work. And a knowledge that serves. So let's go to the second one. First, grace empowers me to serve Christ. Secondly, grace exhorts me to remember Christ. Pretty simple encouragement there. Let's look at verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So here again is a gracious warning to us. Right? It says we want these qualities to be in us and increasing. We want them to be noticeable in the life of the church as we serve Christ and so serve each other. But it says, for the one, and notice how Peter breaks this up. For, for, therefore, for, for. That's how we break up the text. It all looks back to what he just said. So, for the one who lacks these qualities. See, it doesn't say that they are spiritually dead, but functionally, this person is spiritually blind or short-sighted. 
Now again, blind is a, is a term often attached to the unbeliever. Jesus himself called the Pharisees blind guides. He said, man, if you would admit that you were blind, you would see. But because you say you see, you are actually blind, right? You do not have spiritual sight. So why would Peter attach this kind of, this kind of label to a believer, right? A believer who is a partaker of the divine nature. Well, I think the answer is simple. If the man who is in Christ and does not have these qualities evident in his life, that is, he lacks them, he is functioning like an unbeliever, which is a scandalous inconsistency. Where we do not want to grieve the Holy Spirit or deny His work in our lives. But we want to humbly submit to His sovereign grace and power. But you've got to remember, you are either behaving like a believer or you're behaving like an unbeliever. There is no in-between, right? There is no fence. There is no in-between. I'm sort of acting like a believer or sort of acting like an unbeliever. It's one or the other. And that language, this black and white language, is, it gives us clarity. It's for our good. We don't want to function like an unbeliever. We have, we have been given through the Gospel eyes to see and ears to hear. So why in the world would we act blind? Why in the world would we not give careful attention and commitment and devotion in growing in these virtues because God has given them to us? Why would we fail to do that? If we would do such a thing, if we would sin against God in such a way, we are acting like an unbeliever because we, because what do unbelievers do? They deny grace. So functionally, we are acting like the unbeliever because we are denying grace in that sense. So we have to just take Peter at his word. So one of the best ways of understanding this, because he uses the word blind and nearsighted, uh, one commentator suggests that this is the way in which they, their blindness is manifested. It's not that we're completely blind or we're going out of our way to be blind. We just we are nearsighted. We haven't taken notice of certain things. You think about nearsighted. You can only really see things and focus up close. So one thing I think that brings to mind, especially um, in the midst of perhaps persecution or even the, the presence within the church of uh, if false teachers have infiltrated, Sometimes we do fail to take in the broad picture of the work of the kingdom. We think only of the here and now, of, of the immediate, rather than seeing the, the scope of the gospel and, again, God's power to bring all things in subjection to His Son. We, see, we fail often to see the, the implications of the gospel faithfully proclaimed that it is a long-term work, it is a long-term commitment of the church to see that through. So we don't want to get stuck being short-sighted and, 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 and in so doing, grow stagnant and, and fail to grow in these qualities. And one of the most tragic things of this is that we have, if we're short-sighted, we have lost sight of Christ. We have taken our eyes off Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Most specifically, we have done what Peter is describing here. How is one short-sighted? Why is one short-sighted? Well, what has this person done? Something very key. They have forgotten their purification. Peter says he has forgotten his purification from his former sins. So he's, he's gone blind. He's become complacent perhaps in his sanctification, lazy in his pursuit of godliness. Once again, a total contradiction. But why? Because... He has forgotten his purification from his former sins. 
And here's why I believe this is talking about a believer. Yes, believers can even do things like this, unfortunately, which points us again to our need for grace, for God to be patient with us. But here's the deal. Unbelievers have never been purified from anything. They are still in their sins. They are still corrupt. They have not been born again. They are not purified. The believer has indeed been purified. And of course, this passage also gives us insight as to the, one, one of the main reasons that a Christian sins. So we, we, we struggle with that, don't we? Why do I sin? If I am born again, if I have a new nature, if I am, have been raised with Christ and partake of the divine nature, I'm justified, I'm being sanctified, I'm going to be glorified, I dwell in the presence of God with other believers, so why, pray tell, do I sin? Well, here's one of the simplest, simplest um, explanations. Forget who you are. And in forgetting who you are, you take your eyes off Christ. If you take your eyes off Christ, you will sin. Don't forget who you are in Christ. And most importantly, don't forget who Christ is and what He has done for you. Right? This, is, this purification is something that is, ha- has happened to you. Right? You cannot purify yourself from your sin. You can't even repent on your own from your sin. It is all a gift from God. And so the person that fails to grow in grace for a time forgets. That's how their blindness manifests itself. It's really a mental blindness. It's a blindness of the mind. Which is sad because we have the mind of Christ. And yet, even having the mind of Christ, we forget Now, all the inner workings of that is very difficult to explain. That may be a study for another time. But what we have to understand is the fact of the matter. It happens. It happens. And we forget, perhaps, the most important thing of what has taken place in redemption is that we have been purified. Now, perhaps the image of baptism enters the mind at this point because when one was one, when one wanted to confess Christ, especially in the early church, they were baptized right away. They made a public confession. Public confession dem, uh, announcing that they wanted to follow Christ. They were baptized. They identified with His death, burial, and resurrection. And yet I think it points to even a more important truth, and that is the truth of regeneration. Right? What Titus describes as the washing of regeneration. That you have been purified from all unrighteousness. That the Holy Spirit cleanses you at the time of regeneration from the guilt and corruption of sin, right? Delivering you from its penalty. And as we're sanctified, we're delivered from sin's power and ultimately delivered from its presence. See, when you forget that, that is a form of denying its reality in your life. That the power of God has manifested itself in you via the preaching of the gospel that you were made a new person. And in being made a new person, you are purified from everything that separated you from a holy God. Church, we need to repent of that. We need to repent from our forgetfulness. And this is something we can easily just gloss over and not really take to heart. Yeah, we forget from time to time. Forgetting is wicked. Forgetting is Christless behavior. And it really even goes against the theme of Second Peter, which is to remember, right? We're constantly calling to mind the gospel that was preached to us and all the truths that were handed down from the teaching and preaching of the apostles. 
And here's the fact of the matter. We are not blind to the Gospel. Paul says the Gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In 2 Corinthians 4.3. We are not those who are perishing. So we must stop seeing like an unbeliever. It's almost like the man who was healed from blindness by Jesus. I see men walking about as trees. That was the first time before his sight was made completely whole. That's kind of how we are sometimes. I see men walking about as trees. I'm not, I'm not seeing things clearly. I know those truths are there, but I'm failing to appropriate them in such a way where I apply them so that I grow consistently and faithfully. And we're warned so much in Scripture against forgetting. We want to kind of spend a little bit of time in this passage for our own benefit. But even though we are God's people, we must not forget what He has done. It's, it's, it's part of His mercy to us is that He reminds us to remind ourselves to remember His redeeming work in our lives. And, and Israel is such a great example of this, even a warning. Uh, several passages on this, but a few will suffice. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 16-18, through 18, we, read, we, we read this, "...they made Him jealous with strange gods." This is the Israelites. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. So consider that in New Testament imagery, right? Being born again, being born from above, neglecting the rock. Who's the rock of our salvation? It's Jesus Christ. We know God. We don't want to engage in an in abominable behavior because we've forgotten. And you think, wow, how did Israel come to this? They saw the, the miracles, the plagues that God worked in Egypt. They were led through the wilderness by a mighty hand. They were provided water from the rock, manna from heaven, even, even delicious quail. Quail meat? You know, He... he he was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He delivered them from the Egyptians. I mean, can you imagine being in the camp of Israel and the Red Sea just opens up by a word of God's power? You walk through it because presumably you believe that God's going to hold up the water. And then you spend the following 40 years complaining and accusing God of unfaithfulness and how He let you out, left you out in the desert to rot after seeing all that. And you wonder how that happens. We give ourselves too much credit sometimes. But we wonder, how does that happen? How could the Israelites fail in that regard? One word. Forgetting. That's how it happens. That's where it starts. You just forget. And it's not, and it's not as if we think of something like, oh, we just can't remember. Forgetting in this sense, so note the difference. Forgetting in this sense is a failure to call something to mind that you already know to be true and something that you believe to be true. But note this, forgetfulness is never a neutral activity. You don't just forget and then nothing. Forgetfulness led and continues to lead to idolatry. It draws us to love things more than God. It draws us to rely upon things other than God. Whether that be our own wisdom and strength, or even outside resources, but it calls us away from God. Tempts us away from His prevailing grace. 
Consider 2 Samuel 12, 9 through 11. Same thing. And note, a few hundred years have gone by. But they forgot the Lord their God. And so, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor. So this is during the time of the judges. He's, re- he's reflecting on that. And into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. They, they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. So note that for, for God's people, there is grace. This is a reminder that if we do start to rely upon other things other than God, if we forget His promises, if we forget His grace, and worst of all, if we forget His Son, there is still provision for repentance. If we acknowledge our sins, acknowledge our temporary forsaking of Him, and return to Him. See, then He says this in verse 11, same passage, Then the Lord sent... Jerubbaal and Badan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. How much more do we experience this in Christ? Security, grace, mercy, deliverance. But then how much more should we not abuse it? How much more should we not neglect the provision? What a tragedy it is that that occurs when we forget the Lord. In Psalm 106, same thing. They quickly forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So He gave them their request. He gave them what they wanted. But sent a wasting disease among them. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. I think sometimes that's why the church experiences such periods of weakness where we're just not doing anything. We're not having any impact on society. I think one of the first things we forget is the power of the Gospel. We forget to rely upon the power of God that it is He that brings men to repentance rather than relying on our own wisdom and devices. We act like the Gospel is just not going to do anything. But we want to see that work done again. We want to draw our hearts to Him. We want to call to mind the things of old and the things that He continues to do in His people and all the great grace that He gives us to perform our task well, and to live in Him. I mean, that's precisely really what the first step toward repentance is, is remembering who you are. Who we are in Christ. And remember who Christ is in us. Again, remember our word meanings. What does repentance literally mean? A change of mind. Repentance literally means a change of mind. And how is the Christian changing his mind in this case? Well, he's remembering. He's going from forgetting to remembering. That is a change of mind indeed. Once I had a mind that forgets, now I have a mind that remembers, that calls into clear view the grace that's been given to me. This is why Christianity goes beyond behavioral modification. It's not what Peter is just talking about. Do this, do this, do this, do this. No, it begins in the mind. It begins, remember, in the inner man, in our affections, in recognizing God's grace at work within us. As well as faith, believing in the God who gives all of these things to us. See, this is why Christians sin. Because they, they think wrongly about God instead of truthfully. See, if you think rightly about God, you will do rightly. You know, even the Lord pleaded with Israel and the prophet Isaiah, I believe opening chapter, what did he say? Come, let us 
reason together, right? Let's, let's think this through. Let's take the truth you know about me, right? Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be, made, they will be washed white as snow. That's grace. Remember grace. Remember the God who gives it. Turn and worship Him. Turn and follow and love Him. But this requires thinking, right? This doesn't go back to how you feel about God. It goes back to what you think of Him and what you know to be true and then responding in truth. Think about the same thing in the life of the church when we appeal to one another, whether we stumble into sin for a time or flounder in immaturity, or when the faint-hearted need encouragement, or even if you're doing the opposite, even if you're experiencing tons of spiritual growth and victory, we still are to call to mind the first things. Right? And to think rightly about God. Even if we are in a terrible place, how many of you have read John Bunyan's Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress? Show of hands. Oh, shame on you. All right, just kidding. It's a good read. It, is, it has been said that other than the Bible, it's probably the most important work of literature uh, in the world. But there's a great you know, allegory of the Christian life, but there's, there's this great example from the Pilgrim's Progress. And the main character, Christian, and his uh, partner at the time, Hopeful, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're on their hike, they're on their way to the celestial city, and at some point, they get apprehended by the giant despair and locked in the doubting castle. Sounds pretty bad. And after a time of being severely mistreated and beaten by the giant to the point that even Christian despairs of life itself, he finally remembers, now look at what he says, what a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Right? I mean, you know, who knew? Well, he had to call to mind the truth of the Gospel. What a fool I've been. It's okay to say that, yes, I have been a fool. And I've been lying in this stinking dungeon when I'm a free man. Because my freedom comes from Christ. If, Christ. if by the Word of Christ I am free, then let no word contest that declaration. Walk in liberty. Walk in the freedom that Christ has given you. Take hold of the key called promise. Right? We live life in light of the promises of God. The truthfulness of His Word. What does Hopeful say? He says, that's good news. That's good news, says Hopeful. Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. <laughs> it's nice to have another voice who agrees with that truth, right? To, to encourage you along, right? I love this because Christian is not alone. Nor should any of us be in this walk, in this quest for the celestial city. But remember, we always have the good promises of God to get us through these things and to overcome despair and doubt, but that comes to a but for that to happen, we must come to a humble recognition of having forgotten God. All right. We don't want to fall prey to it, just like in Deuteronomy one thirty nine. Moreover, your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. You know, even after they go into the promised land, what does Judges say? Along came a generation who did not know the Lord. Remember, those, the generation before them, 
was tasked to tell them all that the Lord had done, and they failed. So uprise this generation who did not know the Lord, and so they are plunged via lack of knowledge into being enslaved by the heathen. What a time of suffering that was because they did not have the knowledge of God. But listen to this. There, are a, there is a way in which we are to relate to that, right? We, we, aren't to st- <clears throat> we aren't to stay immature, right? We're to constantly remember and then grow by it. Listen to Deuteronomy 1.39. Or sorry, sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, 1-12. We're warned. And I, brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. See, they're still wallowing in immaturity. It's almost as if they have the key of promise, but they're fumbling about with it. They're not putting it in a lock and twisting. Or they have the key, but they doubt that it will work. And so they are immature. They are immature. Even, even Paul recognizes we still have to stay with the basics because it, you guys aren't getting it. And we don't want to be a church who just can't seem to get it, who just can't seem to mature in the faith. We don't want to be a church who, as Paul says, simply can't receive it. As if we're hardening our own hearts toward the truth. Truth that will nourish us. Truth that will help us grow. Truth that will continue to make us wise into salvation. But listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. He describes this as something that is to be characteristic of the past, right? Even before we came to Christ. And of course, the Galatians were struggling with the presence of the Judaizers who were adding works to faith. So there's our context, but he says this, Galatians 4.3, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under to under the elemental things of the world. So that is the stoicheia, right? The idea is things stacked in a row, right? You can stack them sideways, horizontally, but they never lead vertically to God. Right? So you were in bondage under those things. Under things that inherently could not save you. But then, verse 4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. See, now we have the vertical. Sent forth His Son. Born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, now the Galatians, hearing this truth, now have the opportunity to really lean into the gospel, to lean into God's grace and to experience all that it supplies and provides for them. Right? And it's not from their own works. It comes from the Holy Spirit. We don't want to deny ourselves the supreme worth of Christ in our midst by depending upon our own works, right? by doubting and even despairing and acting faithlessly and refusing to grow. That's why Paul tells the Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's, again, sanctification is mental. It's as much mental as it is a work of the heart or a work in the heart. Our mind is engaged in this. We are constantly to be refreshing it in the Word of God. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says to the Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 11-14. through Same thing, same same exhortation. Same exhortation to mature. And these, of course, are, are Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back into the old ways of the Judaizers. 
Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So these things happen. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. And aren't we thankful here for the, the grace and mercy of God and how much patience He shows toward us? The, here, here are people who seem to be stuck in the mud. They will not mature. He says, wow, the, the gospel has been among you long enough to, to where you should start being fruitful, start being productive, start reproducing, start seeing the dominion of Christ expand by your own discipling work. Within, within other, among other Christians. But he says, no, you're not there. This is sad. You're not there, but we'll go back to the basics. Someone's got to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. How much we should crave solid food having tasted the milk and knowing the life and transformation that it brings to us as God's people. So Paul gives some helpful instruction in 2 Corinthians 7.1. He says this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is, that is the, the actions of one who desires maturity. He says let's cleanse ourselves, right? There's that play on the, the, the purifying power of the Gospel, right? Let us continue to cleanse ourselves. That is to, to, to act in such a way as we are consecrating ourselves, preparing ourselves to serve God, right? Perfecting holiness, that is, perfecting devotion in the fear of God. But how is that done? It's latching on to the promises, right? It's remembering, calling to mind the truth that transforms us. Remembering what Christ has done for us. See, we are not to act like children, continually to act like children tossed about by every wind of doctrine. As C.S. Lewis says, I believe it was him, he says that God wants a child's heart but a grown-up's mind. We're not to reason as children, right? When we be, Paul says, when I became a man, I put away those childish things, right? When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. So, so, so there is a, a recognition from the Apostle Paul that we are to mature in the way we are think, that we are thinking. See, the only time we are to act like babies is from 1 Peter 2, 2, where we desire the pure milk of the Word. In 1 Corinthians 14, 20, where we are to be infants in evil. In Matthew 18, 2-3, where we are to be like little children, otherwise we are not to enter the kingdom of heaven. But this is not in our thinking. This is on our dependency upon God and our humility before Him. So other than that, the cry from Peter is to not be immature, but grow up. Do not deny the Word of God. Do not deny the power of the Spirit by being content in immaturity. Continue to grow. Continue to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And to put these things on display. Because when we do, we put grace on display. And when we put grace on display, we put Jesus Christ on display. So those are the first two. That grace empowers me to serve Christ and grace exhorts me to remember Him. Let's serve Him well, but let's serve Him well by not forgetting what He has done. When we remember it is all of Christ and all by Christ and all from Him, 
we are able to serve Him with excellence and to serve one another with love. Well, I had three more points, and we will cover those next Lord's Day. But for now, there's two, two truths for you to chew on this week. So may they nourish you well. Grace empowers us to serve Christ, and grace exhorts us to remember Christ. And by God's grace, we will do just that. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and faithfulness to us. We thank You for grace. Grace that is, uh, that is so abundant. Uh, grace that, is, that really transforms us. It's all of grace. It's all a, a precious gift, Lord, from You because You love and care, care for us. Uh, it is grace that points us to Christ. We, we, we want Him to be... He is everything. He is everything to us. And we want... We want the, the, the power and strength to serve Him well, but we also, Lord, we need encouragement. We need encouragement regularly, that, that gentle and even sometimes firm exhortation to not forget what makes this all possible, to not forget that it is also grace that, that helps us call to mind all the things You've done. Uh, help us not be hearers only, hearers who forget but here's who take hold of your promises and do not let them go. Because we believe them and we believe you. And we believe you, Lord, because you have granted us the very faith we need to believe. And Lord, if our faith is true, if it truly rests in you and in the work of your Son, we do want to grow. We don't want to, we don't want to be stagnant, nor do we want to forget the wonderful work You do uh, for us and even now in us. So help us, Lord, to remember. Help us to remember Christ, that it is Him we serve, and that in calling to remembrance everything that He has done for us, it is a reminder also to worship and adore Him. And so we do that now, uh, in lifting up His name that is precious to us, the name above every name, in whose name we pray. Amen.